Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 45. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about Maori homes and communities. So I just wanted to make a note here that I, throughout this episode, pronounce Maori wrong. So please make sure you listen to Jacqueline Paul, how she says it, or go back to Dr. Diane Menzies' episode and listen to how she says it instead of... (laughs) Please don't use me for a reference. So just wanted to make a quick note, make sure everybody knew to pay attention to that. And my apologies again for the mistakes. Thanks, everyone. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nooch or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. On today's show, we have Jacqueline Paul, and she is going to introduce herself. Tēnā Jessica. Tēnā rā tātou katoa, ahuri ahau Ngāti Kahanunu ke here taunga, Ngāti Tūwhare toa me ngā puhi nui tonu. He kai mahi rangahau Māori me ngā kai hōhoa whenua, ko Jacqueline tōku ngā. So kia ora, my name is Jacqueline Paul, I affiliate and in descendant of the Ngāpuhi tribe from in the far north of Aotearoa, New Zealand, down in the east coast in here and over in Taupo, or Ngāti Tūwhare Toa, in the central part of the North Island. I'm really honoured to be able to share with you today some of the work that I do as a housing researcher and landscape architect. Kia ora. Yes, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you on the show today, and part of that is we already had an episode with Dr. Diane Menzies, and so I'm really excited to kind of dig deeper into some of the topics that she already brought up in her episode but a lot of a lot of her episode we were doing a lot of just basically defining what landscape architecture is and some of those more basic concepts that people who work in the the heritage or in the US as we call it cultural resource management fields might not be as familiar with. So I'm really excited to get to kind of go deeper with you into some of these conversations and from obviously a a slightly different perspective. So to start, let's talk about how you got into this field and, and what got you interested in this kind of work. Yeah, I guess so, because I live in Auckland, which is the main city. I actually live away from my kind of tribal group. And it's been really different uh, growing up here in the city. But it really stemmed from, you know, being able to go home in the far north specifically. Uh, My father would always take us back to where we still have family land or Māori land. And growing up, that experience, seeing how, I guess, isolated and neglected that the equivalent of reservations or Māori land here really under-resourced and so seeing my family in impoverished conditions really struck a chord with me and so growing up through high school I was really interested in understanding the kind of cultural and social fabric of society and the makeup of that but also at the same time I was really into graphics and design at that time and so being able to utilize strengths that I was really good at and thinking about how I could contribute to change for my own family that's what led me into first architecture but then I changed into landscape architecture so it's been a long time coming but because I've seen you know the changes and the conditions around me within my own family it's really contributed and shaped me as a person and to where I am today. Okay, so 
Can you talk a little bit more about, first of all, what made you shift from architecture to landscape architecture? Yeah, I guess I was first interested in architecture because of the it's not common for Māori to go into a pathway like this and actually I was perhaps one of two or three Māori who were at the architecture school at the time and I really wanted to think about how housing was an opportunity to create change but actually the way that education kind of curriculum was set up at the time and that transition phase out of high school into university was really difficult for me at that time and I didn't find a you know, sense of place or connection then. However, when I transitioned into landscape architecture, which had a stronger focus within the curriculum, looking at Māori development, uh, Indigenous development, in which Dr. Diamenzies was also a lecturer at that time, I was really happy to continue to progress within that career pathway and what does that look like. And that's really where I found my sense of place and connection within the discipline. So why do you think, just curious, since obviously I don't regularly work with architects or even landscape architects, why do you think there is that difference between the two fields that you've seen? Yeah, I think there's a huge kind of representation within the staff in architecture school. It is predominantly represented by non-Māori. And so when you have lecturers and educators who don't look like you, sound like you, think like you, it's really hard to become familiar and connect with them and be inspired sometimes. So I didn't find that in architecture and I found it really difficult and I struggled. But when I transitioned into landscape architecture, there were two lecturers who were Māori, you know, and that leadership and that guidance and support within this discipline really helped. So because that support was there, I was able to continue to strive uh, within this pathway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was one thing that I thought was really interesting, basically doing my little bit of research before this episode was, you sent me a link to this amazing speakers list website, which sounds really interesting. And it kind of going along those same lines of representation and, and seeing yourself within the field. And I, I just think it's really cool. It's something that, you know, I've thought about needs to be done for the, the heritage and the CRM field here in the U.S. So could you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so the amazing speakers list was developed under the Women in Urbanism umbrella, which is a committee here and trust in New Zealand, which is, you know, run by some pretty phenomenal and amazing women advocating in urban centres, transport, uh, diverse disciplines where women are not necessarily represented or heard and valued. And so because we were seeing a lot more conferences, lack of representation, speakers across the board, this was an opportunity to allow diversity for people to connect and find people who are comfortable within the space to continue to advocate and represent in the diverse spaces that we work in. So that has been facilitated by Emma McInnes. She's really amazing and a great ally for us, especially as Māori, who has been really supportive. And so really grateful to be a part of that amazing speakers list to ensure that yes women are heard but indigenous women and people of color yeah absolutely so on the website and we'll have to put a a link in the show notes but she asks if your panels are mostly pale stale and mostly male (laughs) then you need that list i think that's pretty funny but yeah i think that's that's really key and i mean i've thought about the fact that we need something like that, you know, just like a list of people, because then there really is, like it says on that, that website, no excuse for not making sure that your panel is, is representative. And so in the meantime, until that list is, is created, there's plenty of contact info for people who've been on this podcast. So if you're looking to put together a panel and need some more representation, go back through the archives. But yeah, I just thought that was really cool and wanted to bring that up while we were on the subject of representation. So going back to landscape architecture, first of all, you have a beautiful portfolio. It's online and it's, it's just really beautifully done. 
Can you talk a little bit about some of the, the work that you did, some of the projects that are in there, for example, like actually applying landscape architecture? Yeah, sure. So the during study, I was able to work as a technician in a small company, so in design and build, mainly in residential, but some commercial projects as well. And that was kind of my first engagement within practice around understanding how it works at a small scale. So that's what some of those projects are from, you know, single dwelling and basic landscape design plans to social housing and public housing stock for New Zealand. They're really different to uh, large-scale master plans for wedding venues, commercial properties. I think the weirdest one I've done perhaps is like a gun pallet range thing. (laughs) So it's really diverse and it's really broad. And some of the projects were in research and development. So really mix of work that I've been able to be involved in and trying to just understand the different things that are happening and how they work and what they mean and how you can support families in different ways or businesses and just really thinking about community. So although it could be, you know, as small as a landscape design for a family, it could be as large as a venue and the scales are really different. But it's been exciting for that to be kind of my first initial training ground prior to moving into education and research specifically within housing. And what does that research look like? I mean, how do you, so I'm cultural anthropologist, so obviously this part intrigues me. How specifically are you incorporating the the community's perspectives or family's perspectives into the work that you do? Like how, how do you gather their perspectives first of all, and then how does it like, can you give us an example of, of what that actually looks like getting put into a project? Yeah, I guess because all of my work is Kopapa Māori, which is by Māori for Māori. And the work that I've been engaged in, specifically within housing and urban development, is around understanding the needs and aspirations of communities and what does that mean. So from large-scale impacts of urban regeneration, whether that has worked as a process for communities or not, uh, capturing those voices and allowing them to share those you know, in terms of the changes within their communities. So we become just really conduits and support people to allow them to share their voices and empower them to advocate for their own change, resource them, instead of, you know, some of the common ways of working within research, which is go to a community, you know, take their words and stuff and go write journal and conference papers. Well, actually, we take them on the journey with us. We employ those tribal groups to become researchers. They are the ones who come and present with us at community conferences. And so there's all these different processes in which Māoridom allows us to support that and can be really complex for some people who don't work in this space. So I haven't actually worked with non-Māori in research specifically yet, and I don't know anything else. But there are some really fundamental methods and principles that help us and our communities that we work with, specifically Māori, right through to things like working with young Indigenous people you know, what do they think about housing? What do they think about the city? And how can we connect them within this larger scale of research, which is not so common all the time within the younger demographic. So it's all these types of new learnings and empowering our people to advocate, share, know that they are valued and that they are heard. So we're already coming up against our first break point. But one thing that over the break that I want people to be thinking about is so you're talking specifically about youth and and Maori youth at the end there and I remember in grad school one of my professors recommended an article called why do anthropologists hate children (laughs) but it's basically I mean it's, it's a good point though that the youth always get excluded from from a lot of the the cultural and heritage projects So I'll be curious once we get back from the break to hear more from you about 
why this particular focus on youth, what youth bring to the table that is being ignored. Yeah, all of all of that goodness. <laughs> so we will be right back here in a moment. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 percent off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code hevo h-e-v-o pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we are back. I just was asking about why it is important to incorporate youth into your work. Yeah, I guess perhaps some context. I've spent the last couple years working with young people from joining youth councils to working in governance around advocacy and so all diverse kind of spaces to advocate and allow young people to be involved in some of the conversations that concern them and their future have such a huge issue around lack of representation generically uh, with young people in local government and spaces because they're not included. And that stemmed through everything, uh, right through the processes in which we design communities, make decisions and allocate funding. So it's really broad, but it really kind of ingrained in me trying to advocate specifically around Indigenous Māori uh, and young people because Specifically within the housing space, we have this really cool saying that if you're not at the table, that you're on the menu. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we always use this as a concept to highlight around everyone else making decisions and the lack of inclusion of us in, in these processes. So in all our work now, we ensure that we engage and include young people, even creating opportunities, you know, scholarships, employment, however that might be, because people need to be resourceful for their time as well. And so valuing that within everything that we do has been really important. You know, it's funny, and I, I don't know if this is the same where you are, but a lot of the tribes that I work with here, you know, something that, that we hear a lot is, oh, the kids, they don't care about their heritage and they don't care about this. They're just on their video games and technology and blah, blah, blah. But I feel like in my experience that that's not necessarily true. Like when you talk to younger people about the work that we do or the work that archaeologists do or, you know, other people that they definitely are interested in, you know, their heritage and their culture and and all different aspects of, of those things. Do you feel like that is true where you are, too? I think we're in an interesting time right now. Because we are seeing a lot more movement on the ground, like think about climate change, we think about the activism that is going on here, that they care. <laughs> they just care about certain things that really concern them and that where people create the spaces for them to have these conversations as well. And we're seeing slight shifts in mainstream, but actually we are valued more so in our tribal spaces but not necessarily in mainstream so how do we kind of embed that within the cultural and social society that we live in and it's really complex and 
different across the country and different groups and different urban centres and around those opportunities that they may have access to. So they care and they have voices. You just need to be able to allow space and time for them to engage in that, whatever that looks like, but not always done. You know, it's we always have this kind of tension sometimes between generations perhaps, but actually I think... Right now we're slowly turning, thinking about a more inclusive society and what that looks like. So do you feel like looking at at your work and working with different generations within the communities, are you seeing that there is differences in, in what they would like to see when it comes to, you know, actually designing structures and landscapes and places between the generations? Or is there more consistency I guess than you might expect so we live in two worlds there's a Maori world and there's a non-Maori world or a western world and they're very different and they're slowly weaving together in some places more inherent you know within a Maori worldview everything we do is intergeneration that is common within our own knowledge systems and our own practices however in mainstream we use you know landscape architecture as a practice there are certain great examples around how that's changing I know colleagues who are also Maori landscape architects working with Kura Kaupapa Māori or Māori schools around partnering with local government to design parks and places that they live in. So there's these, you know, smaller projects that are happening, but what we need is a massive term within the industry and the way in which we practice and engage and work because everything tends to be very linear it's always by the book but what we need right now is innovation in the way in which we do things and I think Māori you know principles and values can help shape and form that and so a lot of the larger scale projects here in Aotearoa are starting to do that in terms of embedding these principles and values in the built form because Ideally, we want young people to grow up in places where they see their faces in these places and identity is embedded within the fabric that we live in, that the stories of place and history are told through different, you know, design responses and techniques and allow us to really connect. For so long, our history here has not been acknowledged, but we're starting to see this shift within our society that is going to be embedded in education. Think about how we start changing the way we practice to tell these stories so there's a lot to do but there's also a lot that's already been done so I guess that's kind of that notion of the tightest turning in our two worlds are starting to weave together mm-hmm. okay so can you explain that concept a little more I'm curious about okay the two worlds are, are weaving together what does that look like yeah I guess for myself it's really exciting as a young indigenous Māori you know working landscape architecture as a young lecturer in the education system, being able to work in a lot of governance spaces. And so in my youthful years, I've been able to see some of the places where we've come from and where we're going at the same time. Uh, So we think about it as a kind of, yes, vertical and horizontal change, but we're seeing that tangible change now. We're not hearing about it. We're doing it. We're living it. We're able to understand this idea of well-being and its holistic notion, which is already normal in Māoridom. And so these concepts is now being embedded and ingrained within the society. And it's both at a grassroots level and at a high political level, which has really been great. You know, we have the most representation of Māori in our parliament ever. So There's all these types of ways where we can hold space, create space and represent our people to ensure that what what is good for everyone is done by Māori and and embedded within the society and upholding the principles of tetiriti or our treaty. So do you know like about how many Māori are in your parliament? I mean, because last year no two years ago i think we just got our first two native american representatives in congress i'm just curious yeah i can't remember off the top of our head but because we have you know maori seats as well that always helps around ensuring that we've got some representation it's not 
obviously 50-50. But because when you start seeing people in those positions, they are able to advocate you. You It's really easy for us here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, to connect with certain politicians. You can literally tweet them. You can literally Facebook them. So they're really accessible. And they're really great at advocating for us and taking time. So I know we, we're very in different two spaces in the US and New Zealand, but because they're very accessible, we're able to be heard and they're able to advocate really fast. So I guess those types of systems are really different and because it's a smaller scale, we're able to see a lot more change. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. Whereas here, I mean, it's definitely like, you know, your representative represents a lot of people. <laughs> so mm. it's definitely harder to have that one-on-one connection. Although, I mean, honestly, like in all things, you get out what you put in. So, I mean, if you make yourself known to them, they'll they'll definitely know you, but you have to do more of that effort, I guess. Okay. So, I mean, I think that, first of all, is one answer to what I'm about to ask you next. But from a Maori perspective or from a landscape architect perspective, from a youth perspective, you're talking about creating, you know, these homes and places that create community. What makes for a great home or a great community or how do you build those aspects in to the built environment? How do you tie in these community perspectives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I guess if we think from a Māori perspective, there is always this languaging around housing or a house versus a home. And those are two different very concepts which are now used in Māoridom a lot is around kainga ora or the health and well-being of a place. And so that is really important because it's a holistic notion. And so the difference between a house and a home is really important in the way in which we view things and see things. That's one thing. A home supports a family from more than just a, you know, wars and beans. Tony Kake, an elder from Mpapakura, always talks about it's not about wars and beams, it's about hopes and dreams. And that's the difference between a house and a home. That concept is really important to shape the way in which we do things and the way in which we practice. And that's been really awesome in terms of the foundation to move forward to address such issues, specifically within housing. And now we're starting to see, you know, how do we include the community in the process of design? How are we engaging them? What are the different methods that we're going to work with them to help shape the environment that they live in and around that inclusivity and the valuing of their voices by the sustenance of sharing of food and kai around those relationships and those building processes between you know those who are designing and the communities that will live in these spaces that's a whole difference, the way in which we approach these things. So if we understand that framing and that concept, that will influence the way in which we practice. And until we do that, nothing will manifest and ensure that we get these processes right. So that, you know, once we've got these communities that have come to fruition, people are able to take ownership and be proud and happy of the places that they live in because they've been included in the process from the beginning. And that's just the general community. The same thing is really specific around tribal groups being able to maintain authority over their tribal lands and be involved in the processes which concern them. So there's these types of partnerships and changes that are slowly shifting here in Aotearoa. So it's really heartening to see. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of, so one of the the tribes, one of the Pueblos, I should say, around here in New Mexico, I was talking to some of the people there, and one of their big issues was what in the U.S. we call HUD housing. So basically, this is housing that the federal government came in and helps put in the community. But when this was done in the the 70s, there wasn't exactly all of these things that you were talking about, all of these thoughts that were put in and, and, you know, there was no community engagement about what these houses might look like, et cetera. So it was just kind of your standard, 
the U.S., what you might see anywhere across the country kind of house and not including a flat roof. Culturally, for this Pueblo, they always traditionally did have flat roofs because you would go on the roof and watch the dances. So that was one big issue. Another big issue is that these homes were designed for, for nuclear families, not for extended families. And so all of a sudden, all these houses are put in and, you know, people aren't living with their grandparents anymore. A lot of things aren't being passed down, you know, so a lot of unanticipated issues because nobody ever bothered to talk to the community about these houses that were getting put in. And so I was leading up to this interview, I was thinking about that. And also I was thinking, you know, so on the, on the one hand, there's that side of things, but then on the other hand, there's, you know, the, the issue that we're dealing with right now, which this is, this is being recorded at the beginning of April. So coronavirus or COVID-19, and we're looking at, you know, one of the, the issues that the the Navajo Nation near us is facing is, is that, you know, you're having multiple generations and large families, extended families in, you know, one house. And that in a pandemic that really, you know, makes it very difficult to keep people healthy. You know, like if one person gets sick, it makes it very difficult to kind of separate that person from the rest of the family, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know. I, I guess I'm curious on on your thoughts on all of that, or I'm just kind of reflecting out loud, I guess. So pass the the ball back to you. Yeah, I guess I was really lucky two years ago to, you know, head over to Phoenix, Arizona and to New Mexico to visit a case study called the Ngakizi House in the Navajo Nation. Yeah, 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 yeah. To have some, yeah, really good understanding of, some of the work over there. We did Vivid Sade Pueblo and during our stay while we were over there and have some really great images and some of the work that I do. So yeah, really interesting to hear some of the constant issues around HUD. We also have a HUD here that is has been established in New Zealand and it also have issues around some of the existing kind of typologies and framing of houses that are for nuclear families and are not intergenerational and are not adaptable. So these types of conversations are also within Aotearoa New Zealand as well. Coming there, you know, and thinking about some of the work that has been taking place in the projects, we were actually quite inspired how that kind of work, like the Divine Legacy Project in Phoenix by the Native American Connections. So there were some really good learnings, actually, between the two and some of the knowledge that we do consistently share, which we're really grateful of. But, yeah, definitely I take a point around the COVID-19 kind of process. And I've been thinking about this whole notion of spatial equity between the both urban and regional or rural kind of places and what does that mean in the intergenerational living, perhaps specifically around our Māori groups. Some of the things here are working but also not working because of the lack of resourcing to support those tribes. So I'm not sure the extent of how it's going there, potentially under their structure for Navajo. Here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the thing is that if I use Auckland as an example, majority of Māori live here uh, in the urban core within the South Auckland context, and we already have, you know, overcrowding, we have a high population of homelessness within Auckland, and so all these complex societal issues are right across the board, from homelessness to those in home ownership. And so just thinking within this context around us, you know, being sick and who might not have access, that continues to marginalise us on a within the lens of spatial equity and planning and the way in which we design cities, that they're not future-proof to support a pandemic, especially if we think about density for those who are in, in apartments in lockdown compared to those in the rural areas who might be still living in their village, especially okay, but don't have access to healthcare services as much as those in the city. So there's all these types of equities that we are seeing that were already there but are being revealed a lot more so. I'm not sure whether we have an answer around spatial equity and planning with around a focus on pandemics. I only know of some work that has been discussed over in Australia around what that looks like, but it will be interesting to see some of the work that comes out of, you know, this COVID kind of movement phase. You know, what does that mean and how do we start thinking about the sustainability of our 
communities that we live in. Because right now we're seeing that so many of us still rely on supermarkets and the systems that we are so reliant on, which are putting our health at risk as well. And we're not going back to traditional methods and how we're shaping our communities where we grow our own kai or food, or we're going to, you know, do fishing and all these systems that are Western contracts that do not seek to serve our people, uh, especially Māori. So, yeah, it's always really interesting seeing this emerge uh, and unfold in this interesting time, but consciously thinking about, okay, what does this mean for us and how do we ensure that we future-proof the places that we're designing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a lot more that I want to ask you about that. Some of the stuff that you just specifically touched on, but we are at our second break point. So we will be right back here in a moment. Spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney. Make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, we are back. So I really want to ask you about some of the different stuff that you were just talking about. One thing that you mentioned specifically was homelessness. And I'm curious from your perspective. So I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was, I read an article and I'm pretty sure it was from the U of A, University of Arizona, because that's my alma mater. So I think I, think I remember that one. But basically a study that they did that was actually looking at alcoholism and basically what they concluded was that indigenous people or or Native Americans didn't actually have higher rates of, of alcoholism, but it was just that basically the social inequalities and the structural issues made the, like when there was alcoholism, it just made it more obvious basically. And I'm curious whether or not that might be the same for homelessness. So basically where we live, it's considered basically a border town because we have a reservation right up the road from us. And there's a lot of homelessness within our community and it's both native and non-native. And I feel like a lot of times people see maybe the native homelessness more first of all because stereotypes but second of all just because there's a lot fewer safety nets maybe so maybe it's kind of that similar concept of it's not necessarily that it's you know like higher rates of alcoholism it's just that they're more visible because maybe like they don't have as you know access to healthcare to like help them get out of that or they don't have a place where they can like their family can't afford to have a place for them, basically, maybe away from other family members or something. So I, I was just curious, because you talking about, you know, making communities, making homes, and then homelessness, what your perspective was on all of this and addressing the issue, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's, you know, it's really visible here in Auckland, because you can literally see populated areas within the public spaces so that's really difficult to watch and actually it reminds me of when I started my initial research was that I was walking in a place where the place didn't look like me our identity within this built form but actually it was you know the homeless guy who looked more like me because he was Maori you know, and seeing these social inequalities was really confronting because that's our people and this is how we continue to treat our people. There has been recent investment, but it's still not enough. And we've seen a lot of those inequalities, even more so during COVID. 
And majority of my work actually within homelessness is a specific focus on youth homelessness because here it's a hidden problem that really needs to be addressed at a national level through a more collaborative platform because the inequity gap continues to grow. With half of New Zealand's homeless, they're under 25 and one quarter actually children. So we really need to take a better approach to ending this. So, you know, there's a difference between visibility and hidden and that's why majority of my work within the space is for youth homelessness because not enough is being done here and they're not being heard and they're not being seen and so we've got all the data the solutions or the responses are more focused on the you know adult kind of demographic and the policies and approaches are not appropriate for young people so yeah we have significant issues here within that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think just thinking about, cause uh, where we live specifically within our town, there's a lot of homeless people around our house. And one thing that is coming to mind talking about all of this is that, you know, I, I think a lot of the, the non-native homeless people or not a lot of them, but certainly some of them, they are living out of their cars. So we live right by a grocery store. And so they'll, kind of park their cars right outside the parking lot and everybody knows that they're living there, but nobody kind of bothers them. So I think they're, you know, maybe don't get seen as homeless in quite the same way that the Native American homeless people sitting on the wall that surrounds the the grocery store get seen as homeless because they're not, like they don't have a car to go to. Yeah, sorry, that was just something that came to mind as, as you were saying all of that. So I guess thinking about all of that, thinking about homelessness, and you talk a lot about, you know, advocacy and policy change. And, you know, so what does it look like or what, what kind of work have you done to, like, create more of that structural change, I guess is the word? Um, and why is that important? Yeah, 100%. I guess, you know, I'm only 26 and I've been really lucky to be working in very diverse spaces from local government, working alongside those in central government through different avenues and many different levels and being involved in conversation that not necessarily everyone will be included in. So really lucky that under the National Science Challenge, research has been an avenue and advocacy groups being able to go and meet with ministers and have conversations around potential change and support, guidance and direction around how we might collaborate. And so it's just around all these other processes and those relationships that you have to maintain in order to, you know, try and change things for the public good. It's a lot of work as well, being in different advisory spaces, engaging with those who might not necessarily agree all the time from having discussions around policy change, what does this look like, being really critical at the same time. So very broad, but also can be very specific around some of the housing discussion. And it's really evident uh, in the Māori space within Māori housing, a lot of the work around the lack of investment within the sector. So, yeah, right on one end of the spectrum within youth homelessness, trying to create change, right through on the other end, trying to improve our access to affordable homes to ensure that people have safe and secure places to live. Because right now it is a privilege within the COVID-19 kind of space. And it's all these dynamics that we really need to continue to champion and even more so be involved in. So. A lot to do, a lot of things going on, and still a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. I think, okay, so with the whole COVID-19 thing, you know, I, I think it's really interesting how it is highlighting a lot of, of privilege, the way that you mentioned. Because so, for example, one of my friends here locally, she had she works on the Navajo Nation, and she's a, a teacher. And so she put out a post on Facebook basically saying something about, to keep in mind that like my students, you know, are worried about, you know, being home this much because maybe there's, you know, abuse or maybe they don't know where their next meal is going to come from because they're not in school and they're not getting their, 
you know, free lunches and breakfasts. And, and somebody responded super negatively to it, like a very visceral, obvious reaction that she was being mean-spirited and, you know, basically like that if people want to have hope at this moment, like, why are you bringing them down and, you know, negative and blah, blah, blah. Which to me just like highlighted like how much of a disconnect privilege is, I guess, or just how much people don't want to face their own privilege. I don't know exactly how to put it. But but yeah, I think this is one of those experiences where, you know, like I guess the the word, and I don't know if you have this word outside of anthropology, but structural violence that we're seeing right now, where basically the amount of privilege that you have will directly contribute to how you come out of something. So, for example, you know, like we're seeing on the Navajo Nation right now, hugely higher death rates um, from COVID-19 already, just in the short period that they've had it on the reservation, compared to other people in the state of Arizona, you know, because of Indian Health Services medical facilities being, you know, not given adequate resources compared to other medical facilities or, you know, underlying health conditions, all sorts of larger structural issues. And when I say structural issues, I mean like structural within society, not structural like a house structure. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'd I'd be really curious for somebody who directly works on all of this, what what your thoughts are on on how privilege affects the way people experience, you know, these times of of crisis or how it looks different for different people, I guess. Yeah, I think that's so important, just even the concept of privilege right now, because right now I'm privileged. I am sitting in a house you know I don't have kids running around the house where I'm able to work compared to some of the my students as well I asked them the same question how they were finding it and some of them were finding it difficult because a lot of them still live at home and don't have the luxury where they have space to sit and you know take their online lectures and we're seeing across the country there was earlier discussion when schools were being shut down around that that was their safe haven uh, and that was where they were able to have kai or food um, because they had access to that. Again, I want to touch base on the kind of increase of domestic violence here in Aotearoa is rising as well and everyone knows that here in New Zealand but also trying to be careful around the over-surveillance and militarisation of our communities who tend to be Māori and Pacifica. And so there's all these complex kind of societal issues. I totally agree um, in that concept of privilege across the board, right through to those who, even like myself, have the privilege because you know we're in a comfortable place where we can, you know, buy food and stock up. Some people don't. They're very reliant on the welfare and who have to constantly go to the supermarket all the time to buy food for their families who can be up to, you know, 10 people and are subject to the virus out there so they're more exposed so there's all these yeah totally agree around the privilege and structural societal issues right now that we're seeing Mm -hmm. yeah I mean like just there again there's an elementary school right near my house and they were doing it looked like a laptop pass out this morning where basically you know because everyone's like oh just switch to online plain and simple. It's like not everybody has computers or internet or yeah, like in in my work, people asking, you know, well, can't you just switch to online interviews instead of place to place? And it's like, again, I work with with elders and they don't necessarily have laptops and internet. And even if they did, they might not know how to use it. Just like, you know, my grandma, (laughs) she doesn't know how to use any of that. So yeah, I think that there's maybe sometimes it, it takes something like that to bring all of it to light. But then obviously, as as we saw this morning, there's a, a real resistance to recognizing that fact. Well, we're getting close to the end. So I'm trying to think, is there anything that you want to make sure we get to talk about before this is all all over? No, but I just really hope our indigenous communities across the world survive, really survive. We are seeing an increase of our numbers of Māori during this COVID time and our elders are subject 
to that. So it's been, yes, really great to see our communities wrap around them and try to support them from doing their shopping where they can to all these little things around just being kind and look after your neighbour, all these things. But I really hope that our Indigenous communities make it through this time during COVID-19. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the tribes here in the U.S. have really, I feel like, been leaders in a lot of that and really taking it seriously on a level that, that you don't see the city, state, and and federal governments taking it seriously. And, you know, from the very beginning, and I'm sure that they will take it seriously, you know, longer than everybody else has the willpower to keep going with the social distancing. And, and somebody mentioned that to me the other day, and it was like, well, yeah, because tribes know that nobody's coming to save them, you know? Mm. And I think that's a really important perspective because I think from a lot of us for our from our privilege it's like you know we kind of feel like if it was us that someone would come and save us and I think that's an important distinction I guess to think about during these these crazy times so yeah I I agree I hope that you know those extra efforts Mm. pay off and that thoughts are with the the Navajo Nation Mm, because literally our heritage relies on our existence and we, we lose knowledge systems, we lose value in our language and our culture through this time. And so it's really dependent on, yes, yeah, survival. So really send a lot of love to our Indigenous communities across the globe. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again so much for, for coming on and sharing and especially during these, these crazy times and having, you know, some, some real honest conversations about what's, what's happening out there. So I really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Heritage Voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org, or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.